The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. When we struggle to learn something, the way I struggle to learn piano chords, when you finally put all those laborious, stumbling, awkward, inept steps together, and you're actually playing Lullaby of Birdland, you suddenly are opened onto that sense of sometimes called the flow, what I like to think of as absorption, because happiness and absorption are so not only similar, they're the same thing, really. A lot of people say they hate Mondays. Me, I actually kind of like them, especially this Monday, because today I get to talk to one of my favorite writers. I'm Michael Kovnett, and this is The Next Big Idea Daily, the show where we collaborate with some of the best nonfiction authors out there to give you short, daily, useful insights. Now, when it comes to nonfiction, one of the acknowledged masters is the essayist and critic Adam Gopnik, who, by the way, also writes fiction, memoir, and musical theater lately. Adam has been a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine for decades, and he's written books like the bestseller Parish to the Moon and his latest, The Real Work, The Mystery of Mastery. Adam knows he's a great writer. He can admit it. He's got the National Magazine Awards to prove it. And he's put enough time into perfecting the craft that he doesn't need to assume a false modesty. But he started to think about all those things he wasn't good at. He didn't know how to dance, for example, or bake. Well into his 50s, he didn't know how to drive, for God's sake, because he'd been a longtime city dweller and just didn't see the need. And he looked around and he saw other people who were good at those things, who were great at them. And it got him wondering, how did they do it? How do any of us get good at the things we're good at? And how do some of us become flat-out masters? We live in an achievement-driven society in which kids of all kinds and classes, though in particular fortunate ones from fortunate families, are perpetually being pushed towards the next evanescent achievement instead of the next enduring accomplishment. And yet anyone who is a parent of any sensitivity at all recognizes that what really stirs and moves children, just as it stirs and moves ourselves, isn't achievement, isn't the A's you get on the test or the score you get on the SATs, however instrumental that may be to some larger ambition. No. What really moves and stirs us is accomplishment. Accomplishment, that moment of mastery when suddenly we feel that something profoundly difficult, tenaciously thorny, has given way, and we are now the master of it instead of us being mastered by it. That feeling may not be the very best feeling in life. There are a few competitive others. But it is, I've come to believe, the most sustaining feeling. I know how to do this, and this is the thing I know how to do. Adam Gopnik, welcome to the next Big Idea Daily. Really glad to have you here. It's wonderful to be with you, Michael. So let's start with this. You say at the beginning of your book that this is a self-help book that won't help, which I found quite amusing. What do you mean by that? It won't help you in the sense of giving you shortcuts to excellence or a recipe book uh, for mastery. What I hope it can do is help you become more aware of how you became a self in the first place, how all of the 
the accomplishments we pursue, all of whether it's playing the guitar or dancing with your daughter, how they are the real foundation of your sense of self and how renewing them, restoring them in later life uh, enables you to both to rebuild yourself and to x-ray the self that you already have. And are you a person who your whole life, your whole career have been trying to learn new things and, and master things? Or is this sort of a midlife, you know, return to education and self-improvement? Oh, you it's, know? it's entirely a midlife crisis in, <laughs> in, in, in form. No, I'm a, I will say on my own behalf that I'm a curious person. And most of the form of inquiry that I've done is the self-education of writing. But yes, the things in, in this book are specific to a particular period in my life when some of them are compensatory, things I always should have done and didn't, like learning to draw, and some of them were necessary, like learning to drive, because I finally got fed up with not being able to go get cinnamon buns by the <laughs> ocean in the morning. And some of them are, I don't know what to call it, communicative. They're kind of soul acts, like learning to dance with my daughter um, after she came out as, as gay or queer, and it was a way of having a deeper conversation cheek to cheek about both of us than we might have been able to have um, uh, face to face. That's lovely. And as you've over the years interviewed people who are true experts in some area or another, have you had that hankering to to master something in addition to writing, which obviously you have mastered, but, but are, is there a part of you that's really wanted to be super skilled in some other arena? Yes, music is my great passion. You know, I came to New York intending to be a songwriter. I love music. I laboriously taught myself, like so many kids in my generation, to play guitar. And I have taught myself to play piano. I play guitar reasonably well, piano reasonably poorly. But music, yes, is my great passion. And I always, that's the kind of missing piece of my own puzzle. And I spend more time trying to learn to play um, Hokey Carmichael songs on the piano than I necessarily do uh, the work that, that I ought to be doing. I, too, share that uh, both with piano and guitar lifelong sort of attempt to get decent at it. But I do sometimes wonder, am I wasting my time? Like if I'm not going to be a professional musician, if I'm, you know, what's the point of spending this much time every day just trying to get the scales figured out? And, you know, do, do you ever think about that? Is it, is it useful to do these things, even if we know we're never going to be much more than mediocre? I think it is. Not only do I think it's useful, I think it's essential. And certainly I'm, I'm addicted to it. When we struggle to learn something, the way I struggle to learn piano chords and, and melody right hand, chords in the left hand, um, when you finally put all those laborious, stumbling, awkward, inept steps together, and you're actually playing Lullaby of Birdland, you suddenly are opened onto that sense of sometimes called the flow, what I like to think of as absorption, because happiness and absorption are so not only similar, they're the same thing, really. And when you've had that moment, it's so deeply, not only satisfying, it's self-making in so many ways, that it's like, a, I like to call it a cognitive opiate. You know, you can get lots of opiates for your body to ease pain in your body, but the cognitive opiate of putting steps together into a sequence and astounding yourself by it is one of the most powerful things I think that we that we that we get or that we possess, and it's communicable. It like a disease, like a pathogen in a way. It it enables us to feel confident in ourselves about our own capacities as a person. 
One of the things you set out to do is teach yourself or be taught how to draw, which is an interesting ambition for someone who's written about art, as you have for quite a while. What made you want to go from art critic to artist of a type? It was an impulsive compensatory gesture. Impulsive in as much as I was found myself at a dinner party sitting next to a great reactionary, classically-minded drawing master named Jacob Collins. And I turned and Jake, I said to him, what do you do? And he said, I teach people to draw. And I said, will you teach me to draw? Inside that impulse was obviously a sort of, as I say, a compensatory gesture. I had spent 35 years of my life as an art critic. And I literally couldn't draw a blade of grass so that it would look like a blade of grass. I couldn't draw a human face so that it would resemble a human face. And I certainly couldn't draw a naked human body mm. so that when you looked at the paper, you would have a sympathetic response and say, oh my goodness, that's a good drawing in every sense. So I went to study with, with Jacob and I spent two years of Friday afternoons in his atelier struggling to draw bodies and faces. And I literally, Michael, I had tears in my eyes from my own incapacity to do this thing. And I, I walked out and said, I can't do this. And Jacob basically summoned me back and said, yes, you can. Let's work together and we'll, you'll, you'll find how to do this. But then he said to me, look, the thing you need to understand is you've got a symbol set set in your head that you have to emancipate yourself from. Symbol set is the way, for instance, that we always draw faces. We draw the heads too small. We draw circles for eyes, triangles for a nose, and a banana for the mouth. That's our symbol set for a human face. It's sort of this convention, this stereotypical idea we have in our head of what yeah, a face looks exactly. like. It's the stereotype distillation of what we see. And it's convenient for us because that's where the information is. That's where emotion and expression resides in those things. But it's not what we look like. It's not actually what a human face looks like. But to try and break your symbol set, he explained to me, the answer was not to throw it away because then you would be helpless. He said the answer was to find a new symbol set. And the first task he gave me, for instance, was to look at faces, his and the faces of the models, and Imagine superimposing a clock face over the human face. And then just to ask yourself the very simple question of where does a particular feature or the particular tilt of the head fall if you had it on a clock face? Specifically, is that I right at 10 past two or is it at 11 past two? Mm -hmm. Is the head tilting on its axis at four minutes to midnight or three minutes to midnight? And he called them beautiful name, Tilts in Time. He said, just make Tilts in Time for the next few weeks. And that's what I set out to do. He also gave me the work of when you peer into the play of light and shadow on a portion of human flesh on a, a, a nude model, you're helpless if you just try to describe it. It's too rich. It's too varied. It's too much there. He said, don't turn to your symbol set because your symbol set then will just make you draw stick figure. But think... If you can see a specific shape, a new shape in that jumble of, of light and shadow, see if you can see the outline of a small African nation. Or he would say, see if you can see the profile of a snooty butler or of a child who's just been given a birthday present. Break your symbol set by finding another more original idiosyncratic symbol set. And once you give yourself that task, that task is manageable, right? You can find right. the profile of the snooty butler in the play of light and shadow on a on a nude model. And by beginning to put together these very counterintuitive skills that at first seem unrelated to your larger ambition, but when you begin to put them together through perseverance, 
bit by bit and piece by piece, suddenly you find that you're drawing and the drawing that you have before you, it may not be good in a, in a, in the, what I like to call the exterior, but you suddenly realize it's so unimaginably further forward than you were when you walked into the atelier that you astonish yourself and it increases your sense of possibility and of confidence. What's the life lesson here as opposed to the art lesson? And what I mean is by changing your symbol sets, is there something in there that you can then apply elsewhere to your writing, for example, or to other aspects of your life? Well, first of all, you realize that there's not a single skill or practice that you set out to learn that isn't governed by that same principle, that you break it down into its uh, smallest steps, which are almost always not at all what you think the activity is about. And then if you persevere in learning those steps, they turn astonishingly into this seamless sequence. So that process of breaking things down into their smallest component parts, which are usually, as I say, counterintuitive, not what you would think the bricks of the building would be, and then building them back up, that's universal. It may be quite self-evident, Michael, that that's Mm -hmm. the case, but what I couldn't get over is it's always the case. It's the case whether you're dancing, whether you're boxing, whether you're drawing, whether you're driving, that's how we master things. That's not enough. It's not Mm -hmm. sufficient to master things, but that's the kind of underlying grammar of all human mastery. Well, we're going to keep on studying this grammar of mastery with Adam Gopnik. Tomorrow, he'll be back to share his story of trying to master something that a lot of us find fairly easy, driving a car. If you've been doing it for a while, driving may seem like second nature. But if you're someone like Adam, who made it to middle age without ever having gotten behind the wheel, it can be a terrifying, life-altering experience. Join us to find out how to get better at whatever it is you're trying to get better at. See you tomorrow. Tomorrow.